Our God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit's power. We thank you that you are more than able to break through the stubbornnesses and the calcifications that have settled around our hearts, that you're able to crack open those places and bring light and bring freedom and joy and purpose. And Lord, it's our prayer that you would do that in this time now where we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would come and attend your word richly and powerfully, and that somebody here today would be freed perhaps of shackles or uh, challenged to walk on the path of righteousness or uh, that you would redirect someone's heart or mind. We pray these things and we know that you can do them. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. So Lord, be with us now. Help us to hear you. And may we walk out of this place enriched uh, by your power and by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how many of us walked into the sanctuary today worried about something. Worried about Monday or Tuesday. Worried about a financial obligation. Worried about your cholesterol. Worried about having to confront somebody. Worried about a loved one. Worried about our weight or a health concern or a health concern concerning someone we love. Worried about an upcoming medical procedure. Worried about our grades. Worried about getting laid off. Worried about not having squirreled away enough for retirement. Worried about dying. If you're worrying about something this morning, I just want to take time here to remind you of the benefits of worrying. Here are the benefits. Worry puts you at higher risk for ulcers and problems in your digestive tract. Worrying has been linked with heart attacks and migraine headaches and severe depression and insomnia. Worrying about the future cripples you in the present. It makes you less effective in the present. Worrying causes fatigue and muscle tension and can sometimes make you tremble physically and sweat profusely and become irritable. William Arthur Ward summarizes the benefits of worrying nicely when he says this. He says, worry distorts our thinking, disrupts our work, disquiets our soul, disturbs our body, disfigures our face. It destroys our friends, demoralizes our life, defeats our faith, and debilitates our energy. I like to think of worry as being sort of like a stationary bike. A stationary bike 
occupies you and it makes you uh, work yourself into a lather, but in the end, you don't move anywhere. Well, friends, having said all of what I've just said, I will be the first to admit this morning that I worry way too much about way too many things. And I don't think I'm alone this morning. Uh, This week I googled the word worry, and it came back with 1,130,000,000 results. And then when I typed in the word anxiety into the search, I got another 343,000,000 results. Uh, It seems that a lot of people are talking about worry and anxiety, searching for help related to these things. A survey uh, here in Canada that was done in 2012, about seven years ago, concluded that almost 9% of Canadians, or 2.4 million Canadians at the time, aged 15 and older, reported symptoms that were in keeping with generalized anxiety disorder. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, Nothing seems to be more natural to mankind in this world than to become anxious, to become burdened and worried. I think that's true. And I'm also convinced that even in the church, yes, even in the church, worry and anxiety are a real issue. Uh, Many of us may talk a good game about belief and about trust in God and being dependent on God for his sustenance. But as Scott McKnight says, in our actions, we do everything for ourselves, trusting in ourselves and anxious about the providence of God, all of which, he says, unravels our theism. This morning, friends, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is going to have a talk with us about worry. Jesus knows that being anxious and worrying are like our native territory as people who live post-Genesis 3. And Jesus is concerned here to chip away at our anxiety, to rescue us from our tendency to worry, and to redirect our attention and our focus to God. So let's listen to him. Are you ready with me to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, in the verses that we looked at last Sunday, so Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, Jesus exhorted us there to store up treasures in heaven and to be generous with what we have, to give away more than we keep, to serve God rather than mammon or money, to not allow a materialistic outlook to compete in our lives with devotion to God. Now, It could be that those instructions of Jesus in those verses 
invite some anxiety in us. After all, for, for me to resist storing up treasures on earth, for me to give away more than I keep, how does that help me have a, a sort of basic sense of security as a person who lives in a place right now where I need to have at least some stuff and use that stuff. Jesus will now tackle the anxiety that may arise in us as we reflect back on those instructions of his in verses 19 through 24. Let's go to verse 25, and I trust you have a Bible or a device open to Matthew 6, verse 25. Jesus says to us, He says to you and to me, take this personally. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now, what I want us to notice here before we go any further in the text is that this phrase, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. This is repeated no less than three times in this passage that we are looking at this morning. We have it here in verse 25, and then we have it again down in verse 31, when Jesus says, therefore do not be anxious. And then for a third time we have it in verse 34. Therefore do not be anxious. So three times in the span of only ten verses, Jesus says to you this morning, and he says to me, Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Three times. Why? Because Jesus knows that anxiety dies hard in us. To quote Charles Quarles. The stubborn anxiety in us, and it is stubborn, it needs repeated blows if it is to die. And so Jesus gives us in this passage three successive blows at our anxiousness and our worry because he's gracious and he's good. Now the word that Jesus uses in this passage, this word that we translate into English as anxious, is a word that refers, first of all, to a state of mind, to a mental attitude. Scott McKnight defines this word anxious as internal disturbance at the emotional and psychological level that disrupts life. One more time. Internal disturbance at the emotional and psychological level that disrupts life. The word anxious here has to do with being apprehensive, with being unduly concerned about something. And in verse 25, the word in the original Greek is in the present tense, meaning that the idea is stop your ongoing worry. (laughs) Stop your ongoing worry. Now, we're going to see in this passage, friends, and I want you to listen carefully, that being anxious, worrying, is incompatible with faith in God. Worrying, being anxious, is incompatible with faith in God. As Quarles puts it, worry assumes 
that God is ignorant of his people's needs, that God lacks the power to meet their needs, or that he does not care enough about them to meet their needs. Worry, he says, is an expression of doubt in God's knowledge, strength, or compassion. Worry, friends, is incompatible with faith in God. Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He's speaking to you directly this morning. Take this very personal. Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, in the first century, as Jesus is preaching this Sermon on the Mount, his audience on that hillside was largely made up of people who were quite poor. People whose survival depended, in terms of food, it depended on crops that had ample rainfall, that had ample sunlight. Crops that would be hopefully protected from raiding insects and from wildfires. Drought could drastically affect their ability to eat and could also affect their ability to drink since their shallow, hand-dug wells would dry up very quickly in a season of drought. And clothing. These people in this first century culture had to take, if you can imagine this, they had to take significant time on a daily basis to create their own clothing from the wool of their animals. Hopefully they had animals uh, by which they could make their clothing. There were no marshals or winners or Walmarts for them to go out and simply buy their clothing. So then it would be very easy for people in such a culture to wring their hands, to pace the floor and worry about the availability of food and water and clothing. Jesus said to them, and he says to us today in 2019, stop worrying about these things. And then he asks us a rhetorical question to which he expects us to answer a very robust yes. He says, now watch what he says here. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yes, Jesus, you are absolutely 100% right. Life is. Uh, more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Now, but what does this mean exactly? That's the question. When Jesus asks, follow this closely, when he asks here, is not life more than food? Does he mean to say that life involves more things than just food? So you have food, but then you have a number of other things aside from food that sustain your life. Does he mean that, or does Jesus mean instead life itself is greater than mere food? 
I think Jesus means the latter, that life itself is greater or more important than mere food, that the body itself is greater or more important than the mere garments that adorn the body. And God created your life. Amen? Amen. God created your body. And God creating your life, God creating your body were creative acts on his part that took great and amazing power. Amen? Your very life and your body are great feats that sprung from the mind of God. The question is, if God is capable of that kind of power, of that kind of ability. I was at the eye doctor the other day, and they have this new technology by which they can take a picture of my eye, and it's like an ultrasound, and they can show me the back of my eye and my optic nerve, and it's just mind-blowing. Have you ever seen the back of your eye? Like it's, wow, God did this amazing thing in creating our bodies. If he has that kind of power and that kind of ability in creating life and creating human bodies, is he not capable of the far lesser action of feeding those lives and bodies and watering them and clothing them? The question is, would God create a life and a body and then suddenly say, well, I don't feel like sustaining it or caring for it anymore. Of course not. That's the point that Jesus is making here, that the God who formed us and made us and made our life appear is more than able to provide for us so that we are sustained and kept alive. Amen? So stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Let's go to verse 26. Are you worrying? Are you anxious this morning? If so, Jesus tells you now to look up. To look way, way up to the birds in the air. Are you looking? In your mind's eye, do you have a bird that's forming? You're, you're getting. I, I, yesterday I was out in my yard and there was a pileated woodpecker up in the tree and he's pecking away at this maple tree. I'm not sure if he was successful uh, in getting insects, but wow. And then I all of a sudden thought, hey, I'm preaching on this text tomorrow. This is great. I'm considering this woodpecker in the maple tree. He says, look at the birds of the air. Yeah, it's springtime in Montreal, right? Lots of birds are coming back. Robins are back. Consider the robin or the sparrow, or the starling. Jesus says, these birds neither sow. Have you ever seen a bird planting a nice, neat row of seeds? Doesn't happen, right? He says, nor do they reap, nor gather into barns. What's Jesus doing here? He's pointing out the carefree, nature of a bird's life. Birds don't plant crops and harvest crops and gather and store food like we do. Birds are relatively 
unproductive, aside from the nests that they build. And yet, our Lord says, and yet, watch what he says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Yes. Despite the fact that birds make no provision for themselves, despite the fact that birds don't have a production line of food for themselves that they utilize, God puts earthworms in my lawn for the birds to pull out. And he puts insects on my pine trees for the birds to find there and dine on. I actually wish that a giant bird would come and peck those pine trees down. <laughs> they drop so many needles, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> but the point is that God sees to it, doesn't he, that these carefree, unproductive little creatures are fed. And then Jesus, using the well-known Jewish teaching device called Kalvachomer, which means light to heavy, he proceeds from the light now to the heavy. The light part was the birds, the little carefree birds. They're on the lightweight side of the argument here. But now Jesus goes to the heavy side when he talks about us. At the end of verse 26, he says, this is the heavy side of the argument, are you not of more value than they, than the birds? Now notice this, friends. Here, Jesus goes very contrary to a lot of misguided contemporary thinking when he assigns valuations here to creatures. I know this is very politically incorrect, but it's Jesus. To Jesus here, human beings are worth much more than birds. And the idea here uh, is, is if God sees to it that the lesser valued, lightweight, carefree, and unproductive birds are fed, how much more will he see to it that his image bearers, human beings, are provided for? Now, we really need here to pay attention to the flow of things just for a moment. So in this verse, because this is, this is beautiful, Jesus says, your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Get that. Your heavenly Father. As Christians, we are children of the Father. Amen? Jesus doesn't say here that the birds relate to God as Father. He doesn't say that the birds are considered children of God. Rather, he says that we, his disciples, are children of God and that God is our Father, and yet God our Father feeds the birds. How much more will he see to it that his own children, that you and I, are taken care of. Years and years ago, my dad put a couple of bird feeders on our property at the family cabin uh, in northern Alberta. And he really got into it for a while. He even set aside an entire trash can in the garage that he marked uh, for bird seed only. And uh, you had to know my dad. 
But he had this trash can, and it was full of sunflower seeds, reserved just for the birds that came to the feeders. Dad enjoyed feeding the birds, and he enjoyed watching the birds as they came to the feeders. But friends, I know this. My dad cared for me and for my two siblings infinitely more than he did for those birds. His generosity toward us and his care for us far exceeded what he put aside for those birds. We didn't just get bird seed. And he did that. Why? Well, because we were his children. The birds were not. And, of course, this stands to reason, doesn't it? But the point is, if this is true in that instance with my dad, How much more is it true with God our Father? God's children are worth so much more to him than birds, and yet he sees to it that even the birds have what they need. Now, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't just say birds. He says specifically ravens. Interestingly enough, in the Torah... Ravens are listed as unclean animals. So the idea being that if God provides for these unclean ravens, how much more will he provide for his own children? So, friend, stop worrying. God will see to it that your needs, the needs of his child, are met. Now, at this point, a difficult question might be sounding in some of our minds. And the question is this. How do we square what Jesus says here about providing for the physical needs of his children? How do we square that with the fact that there are people every day on this planet even believing people who starve to death. Whether due to famine or wars or wasting diseases or whatever it is. How does what Jesus say in this passage jibe with the fact that people are dying of starvation every day? Admittedly, this is a very difficult question. The Sermon on the Mount raises all sorts of difficult questions, doesn't it? It's a very difficult question. I don't think there's any totally easy answer to the question. One thing I would say in response is this, and I'm helped here a great deal by John Stott, that we cannot lay the blame on God for inadequate provision in the soil that God has given and made, in the variety of plants that God has given on this planet, in the sun that shines, in the rainfall that he gives, and in his creation of animals and oceans and lakes, God has given the world ample provision. The vast majority of cases of starvation in this world are caused by what? By human greed, by human war, by human oppression and hatred 
and hoarding and waste and pollution and laziness and inequitable distribution. And so I think if we want to blame Jesus or if we want to blame God for saying something here in this passage that seems to kind of ring hollow because of what we experience, I think we might want to look more in the mirror and point the finger less at him. Let's go forward in the text to verse 27. Jesus now asks asks us another uh, question here. He says, now again, he's talking to you, okay? And he's talking to me. And which of you, which of you, look around, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a question that expects what kind of answer? An answer of nobody, (laughs) right? That's the answer. Jesus here is putting his divine finger on the utter uselessness of worry and being anxious. His point here is that worry is pointless. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, worry is pointless. Worry is pointless. Are you worrying right now about something? You need to know that worry is futile. Worry is pointless. Worry doesn't work. You can't even add a moment to your life by worrying, and in fact, you may subtract moments from your life by worrying. So stop worrying. I'm reminded here of the very witty saying of Mark Twain, who said, I am an old man and have had many troubles, most of which never happened. (laughs) Of course, he's saying that he did all that worrying over potential troubles, For nothing. It was futile to worry. Most of the stuff we worry about never happens anyway. Have you noticed that? So stop worrying. Verses 28 and 29. And why are you anxious about clothing? Now, notice what he says. Why are you anxious about clothing? He knows they're already anxious about clothing. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So Jesus here now moves from a consideration of birds to a consideration of lilies. He's in nature, right? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil. That is, they don't have to work to look the way that they do. Nor do they spin. In other words, lilies don't have to spin wool or spin thread to make the garments that they are clothed with. Yet I tell you, says Jesus, even Solomon in all his glory, even Solomon who had incomparable riches and horses and silver and gold and no doubt had an ancient Near Eastern uh, Dolce & Gabbana wardrobe. 
Even Solomon was not arrayed like a lily. The people on that mountain would imagine Solomon in their minds dressed in a beautiful purple royal robe with all sorts of jewels and golden embroidery on it. And Jesus comes along and says, a wildflower is decked out lovelier than King Solomon was. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now notice, won't you, what Jesus says here about the lilies and the grass of the field. Notice what he says. He says that these little plants are alive today, but tomorrow they are thrown into the oven. These lilies, more beautifully arrayed and adorned than Solomon in all his glory, these lilies are alive today and tomorrow they are thrown into the oven. They have a brief Time in the sun, as it were. And here Jesus, I think, is probably referencing a text in his Bible, like Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. The grass withers, and the flower, what? Fades. He's saying that these beautiful flowers, these lilies, are here one minute in all their glory, and the next, they dry out and they turn brown and they get brittle, and the people of his day used dry and flammable foliage as fuel for their ovens. Get this, friends. God adorns those flash-in-the-pan flowers with more grandeur and beauty than King Solomon at his finest. Again, Jesus is using the teaching tool of Kal Vachomer, light to heavy. The flowers are the light illustration here that serve to highlight the heavy, which is you and I. Jesus says, will God not much more clothe us? You and I, every person in this sanctuary, you and I are born as human beings not to be flashes in the, in the pan like those little flowers which are here one day on a hillside, gone the next in an oven. But we are human beings born to live eternally. We will either live eternally with God in heaven or without God, in hell. As C.S. Lewis once said so famously, look around you, you have never talked to a mere mortal. He said, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. If God clothes the fleeting flower." so wonderfully as he does, would he not see to it that his eternal image bearers have the clothing that they need?
And then Jesus ends this verse with what is just a single word in the Greek that we translate into a full English phrase, O you of little faith. He's talking to us worrywarts here. Anybody a worrywart here? I didn't see many hands. (laughs) Thou shalt not bear false witness. Oh, you of little faith. That phrase can be linked and it can be connected directly and organically with the word anxious that is peppered throughout this passage. To be anxious and worried in the ways that we've been describing is due to a lack of faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Worry and anxiety, being cast down and defeated, being mastered by life and its attendant circumstances are always due in a Christian to lack of faith. He also said, worry is always a failure to grasp and apply our faith. Ouch. Oh, we of little faith. Either Romans 8.32 is true or it isn't. If God went to the extravagant length of giving up his own son for us on the cross, surely he's going to graciously give us all things. And in whatever situation we might be in, do we believe actually that God is, to quote Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do we actually believe that? Verses 31 and 32. Therefore, here comes another blow, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles... Seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In verse 32, Jesus uses that term, Gentiles, there to refer to who? To refer to people who don't profess faith in the God of Israel. Gentiles are unbelievers who trust in themselves for food and drink and clothing and material sustenance. Gentiles here describes the kind of person who doesn't look to God to supply him or her. When this person gets anxious over material stuff, he looks to himself to sort it all out. But Jesus says, you Christian, are you a believer this morning? You Christian, you child of the Father, You live a very different life with a very different understanding. You are the child of your heavenly Father, and your great, benevolent, loving, all-wise, and all-powerful parent knows that you need all these things. Did you know that God knows your needs right now much better than you know your own needs? And where you and I so often get our wants and our needs very much confused. Are you aware that God never does? 
He never does. Jesus in verse 32 is calling us to do what? To rest in the all-knowing God who is super aware of everything that we need and who is willing to provide our needs to us because we are his kids. Now, when we get to verse 33, we have what I would call the cure for our worry. You want to be cured of your worry. Jesus has been talking to us about how we worry so much. And his prescribed cure for our worry, we need to note this very well, his prescribed cure for our worry is not to simply tell us to quit worrying. Verse 33 does not say, just stop worrying. That's the cure for your anxiety. It doesn't say that. Notice what verse 33 does say. It says, after all that talk of being anxious, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Oh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you see this? The cure for worry is a search, a striving for something, a whole life ambition. And this ambition is to be first in our lives, to use Jesus' word here, seek, search, have it your ambition, first. Now when he says seek first, what does he mean? He means this, seek principally. Seek above all. Seek as an absolute priority. What are you seeking in your life? Seek as tops in importance. And what is it that we are to seek as our number one priority? Friends, this is so important. It is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are you prone to worry? Are you prone to being anxious? The prescription from Jesus Christ is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I have really benefited from Dan Doriani's summary of what it is for us to seek the kingdom. Here's what Doriani says. This is rather long, but I think it's so good. He says, first, to seek the kingdom is to seek the king. To love him as savior and friend to bow to him as Lord, to trust the God who has chosen us, redeemed us, and taught us to trust him. I'm getting choked up. Second, to seek the kingdom, he says, is to pray for it. Your kingdom come. We pray for kingdom causes, not just for local and personal concerns. Third, says Doriani, to seek the kingdom is to evangelize. That is, to bring others into the kingdom, to introduce them to our king's beneficent reign over all of life. Fourth, to seek the kingdom is to submit personally to God's reign by obeying him. We seek the kingdom, says Doriani, when we obey God at some personal cost. Fifth, to seek the kingdom at work means pursuing wages and profits in ways that please God, 
knowing that that may lead to less money, at least in the short run. Sixth, to seek the kingdom means to have an eye on social reform so that society may at least approximate the justice that God desires. And seventh and finally, says Doriani, to seek the kingdom is to pursue righteousness in public places and distant lands if we can. It also means restraining something as small and personal as our tongue, checking a sarcastic remark, or refusing to repeat a morsel of gossip. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, food, water, clothing, everything you need for daily life, everything you need to stay on mission in this lifetime will be added to you. To seek God's righteousness is to search out God's will and to do God's will in your daily life. To seek God's righteousness is to conform in your inward self and in your outward behavior to God's will in the power that God supplies. To seek God's righteousness is to hunger and thirst for his righteousness and thus have God fill you with the very righteousness that God demands. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then Jesus ends this passage in verse 34 by saying, I love this, some humor here. As I always say, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. Uh, Jewish people are, uh, have this great sense of humor from Jesus all the way up to Seinfeld. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, this is a most extraordinary saying of Jesus Christ. Again, we note that for the third time in ten verses, Jesus hammers, doesn't he, at our stubborn anxiety when he says, do not be anxious. He's already done that, verse 25, verse 31. Here he says, don't be anxious about what? Tomorrow. Are you worried about something that's supposed to happen tomorrow? Monday morning, Tuesday, Thursday, next week, next month. In a year from now, two years from now. I love the saying of Corey Ten Boom. She said this. This is one that we can write on our fridges. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. Isn't that great? Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, Jesus says. And then he says, this is the humorous part, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Now watch that phrase very carefully. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Have you ever thought of tomorrow worrying or being anxious about? Can tomorrow worry or be anxious? Is tomorrow some sort of living being that has the capacity to worry. 
See what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing is he's personifying tomorrow in a rather humorous way. He's picturing tomorrow here as a living worry wart. He's portraying tomorrow doing what we all tend to do, fretting, being anxious, getting all exasperated. (laughs) To quote Charles Quarles, he says, Jesus here imagined the future as a fretting, floor-pacing, hand-wringing, hyperventilating fellow on the brink of an anxiety attack who does more than enough worrying for everyone. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself, friend, so you don't need to be anxious for tomorrow. Isn't this interesting? Let me ask you this question. When is it that you can actually live? Can you live in the past? Can you be alive in the past? Can you live in the future? You can only live right now in the present. You can't even live one minute from now. The great 17th century mathematician and philosopher and genius, Blaise Pascal, has always deeply challenged me on this point. I come back to this uh, particular saying of his often. In, in, in his famous uh, pensées, I hope I'm pronouncing the French right, uh, Pascal put the following challenge to us, and I really want you to tune in and listen carefully because I think this is quite profound. Pascal said, let each of us examine his thoughts. Think about your thoughts right now. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end or the present is never our aim Normally for us, the past and the present are our means. The future alone, our end or our aim. Thus, says Pascal, we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we are always planning how to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. Not a profound quote. Pascal's pointing out here human folly. The folly of either being obsessed with the past or being obsessed with the future and missing out on the only time that we can actually live, which is the present. And all of us tend to do this. Amen? God help us. In his words to us on our anxiety, Jesus wants us to live now, to concentrate on today, to not be preoccupied with anxious thoughts of the future. At the end of verse 34, Jesus says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, Jesus here is a realist, isn't he, about life on a fallen planet. The idea here is that every day of our lives has a divinely assigned quota, if we want to put it that way, of trouble. And the daily trouble is enough for us 
for any particular day that we are living in. We don't grab onto tomorrow's potential troubles and try to pull them into today, right? That would be absurd. That would be foolish. God, I want you to listen, God is God for this day. And God will be God for all our tomorrows. We are given grace from God to face today's troubles, and we will be given grace from God to handle tomorrow's troubles, but we must live one day at a time. It's really all we can do. My friend, are you worried about something this morning? Isaiah 35, verse 4. I say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, Behold your God. Philippians 4.6 Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Matthew 6 again. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, whatever you need, will be added to you by your Father who feeds the birds and clothes the lilies. How much more valuable are you to him than birds and lilies? Let's pray. Our good and gracious and loving Father, we are shocked and amazed again at your loving kindness toward us and the grace that you give us so undeserved grace is by its very nature. We praise you for your provision. We ask your forgiveness for the fact that we so often take your provision for granted. But Lord, we recognize that all we have has come from your hand. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who came in anxious or worried that this word by your Holy Spirit would penetrate their mind and heart and give them peace. Give them encouragement by the gospel. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved of the Lord, go from here with rejoicing. Let your gentleness be made known to all. The Lord is always by your side. Cast worry aside. And by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will keep you. Amen.